warned him that I was preaching last year. He uh, got volunteered to help me with the nickel sermon. And uh, I assured him I wouldn't be uh, inviting volunteers this, this time. Uh, I also saw Garland before I came in. Uh, first thing this morning, he asked me about the sermon and asked if I had three points. And I said, well, I'd just kind of go through the passage and, and have headings and he uh, wouldn't let me off the hook. He said, you get a D. <laughs> uh -oh. He hasn't heard the sermon yet. <laughs> uh, but I could say it. Uh, the sermon is titled True Riches, and it really has one point. And I hope this will bring my grade up. It's just one point. <laughs> uh, that is, if we're faithful in what God has entrusted to us with our, our money and possessions uh, toward him, do what he wants with us to do with them, then he will entrust to us the true riches. That's the one point. Uh, before I get started on, on the text, I'd like to recommend some books on the, top, on the topic of uh, money and possessions. First of all, I recommend the Bible. <laughs> it uh, has 2,350 verses on the topic. Jesus talked on money and possessions twice as much as he talked about prayer and faith. And I trust what it says. Uh, second, I recommend uh, Randy Alcorn's 500-page book, uh, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. Uh, I've read 150 pages of this. It has scripture references on every page for what he says. It's a disturbing book. <laughs> uh, he has tried to be faithful to the scriptures. He invites us to search the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. It's disturbing, but read it. <laughs> Uh, or, and this smaller book, The Treasure Principle, uh, 13 years ago when Cornerstone started, our pastor gave us, each of us, this book, and uh, you, so you may have it. If you don't have it, get it. Uh, it's it's a real wor worthwhile book to read. Also, I'd recommend Your Money Counts by Howard Dayton. He is a wise man, and you need to get acquainted with him. At least read the track that we have by him out here. Let's take a look at the text, uh, Luke 16, 1 through 9. I'm going to read from the Revised Standard Version. You, I think you have the NIV on your bulletin. And I'm not sure what Bible you have, but if the words will be a little different but the uh, same message. Luke 16, 1 through 9. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a steward, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account for your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the stewardship away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that people may receive me into their houses when I am put out of the stewardship. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, 
100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest steward for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, so that, by, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal habitations. Uh, we have the, here the parable of the, of the shrewd steward. Uh, the ESV calls it the dishonest manager. Both shrewd and dishonest are used in this parable. A steward or manager is someone who is in charge of the possessions of the owner of the property to care for it and administer it in the most advantageous way. This steward is given notice that his time, given notice and has time to make some preparations for uh, his future by reducing the debts of his master's debtors. Surprise! The master commends him for his uh, forethought and planning for the future and isn't angry at him for his, uh, for his dishonesty. Uh, this parable raises a lot of questions in our, our minds, I would think. It did in mine. Why did Jesus use the example of a dishonest man to, to make a positive point? First of all, we must remember that a parable is designed to make a single point, and the point of this one is to prepare for the future by using worldly means. Second, consider that we are not told that this is a parable. It is maybe a real-life story. And Jesus is perhaps extracting an important lesson from this real story. And what does it mean to make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings? That seems like a funny way to say something. Take note that wealth fails you when you die. It is of no more use to you. Let's uh, start by seeing what this statement does not mean. It is not Jesus' advice to unbelievers on how to prepare for their coming final place of unrest. This is not his M.O. He is here to proclaim the good news of God's kingdom and eternal life to all who would receive it, not to advise sinners on how to make it slightly more comfortable in the place of torment. Why is it called unrighteous mammon? Isn't money neutral? The ESV Bible commentary suggests that it is because the pursuit of wealth is so often done in such an, an unrighteous way and uh, is gained in that way and includes a great temptation to be unrighteous in its use. Mammon is the Hebrew and Aramaic word for wealth. Barnes notes on the Bible says, the riches of this world are false, deceitful, and not to be trusted whereas the treasures of heaven are true, faithful, and ever-failing, as in Matthew 16, 6, 19, and 20. Clark's commentary adds, Riches promise much and perform nothing. They excite hope and confidence and deceive in both. And here's how they deceive. In making a man depend on them for happiness, they rob him of the salvation of God and of eternal glory. You know anybody that's deceived by riches, pursuing that, thinking it will be make them happy, and getting robbed of eternal glory? That's unrighteous mammon. 
And what is the point of this parable? How I understand it is be generous in the use of unrighteous wealth in helping others. Being their friend, if possible, bringing them to Christ, helping them to enter God's kingdom. So when unrighteous mammon fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. That is, they may welcome you into their heavenly homes or into heaven itself. Let's look at verses 10 through 13. He who is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and he who is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon who will entrust to you the true riches, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and man. In Canada, they call fairs exhibitions. Uh, a couple years ago, we were at the Capitol X with my three concession stands up in Edmonton, and I confronted my employees with verses uh, 10 and 11. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? My first reason in telling them was to uh, to encourage them to be faithful in the, use, in the money and the things of the stand and not steal the money. So remind them that that was an important factor. But uh, being a Christian, my larger reason for telling them that was to Make, have them think about this question, what are true riches? And I asked them that question at the end of that. What are true riches? It's something to think about. I, I didn't necessarily have a definitive answer. but something we should think about. Uh, but one thing I've concluded is that true riches have to last. Uh, we know that money doesn't last. Uh, Proverbs 3, 23, 4, and 5 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be wise enough to desist. When your eye is laid upon it, it is gone, for suddenly it takes to itself wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. So we have the picture of the dollar bill with wings on it, flying away. Uh, money doesn't last. Even if you are among those who accumulate enough in your lifetime to supply all your wants, or most of them, uh, when you die, it uh, is of no more worth to you. It doesn't last. You can't take it with you. King, King Tut proved this. He prepared a great deal of wealth for his journey to the afterlife. And uh, when he opened his tomb, it was still there. He couldn't take it with him. It's on display now uh, in many places to, uh, to give testimony that you can't take it with you. However, Scripture ind indicates you can send it ahead. True riches have to last. Most probably the non-physical things that God gives us are true riches. Ephesians 1.18 says, That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Ephesians 6, 2, 6, and 7. And he says, And raised us up with him and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
The desire for the fountain of youth has been a popular one. The explorer Ponce de Leon was said to have searched for it in Florida, but it was probably a slur to dis discredit him. Yet the concept is a proper one, but we can't receive it in this life. In the next life, we will have that kind of a body that results from the fountain of youth. Romans 8.21 says, Because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. And verse 23, We wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord is a Lord over all and is rich toward all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. A fortnight ago, I was walking home from work reviewing my memory verses in Romans 5. And, by the way, uh, I want to urge you again to do scripture memory. Uh, and do it while you're exercising. Uh, there's a certain amount of drudgery in walking to and from work, and there's a certain amount of drudgery in the act of memorizing. If you put them together, you can forget about the drudgery and, and uh, concentrate on the memorization, and it becomes, an act, it becomes a joy to you rather than a drudgery. Uh, I'm sold on the... Well, well here's uh, back in Birmingham, uh, my roommate Al, when we told him he should be, be uh, reviewing his verses while he jogs, uh, he said, no, that, that won't work out. That, that just won't work. But then he finally tried it, and he just loved it, just as uh, my other roommate, AC, and I did. And I'm, I'm sold on the uh, Navigator topical memory system. They have these uh, little verse cards. You can hold them on your hand. Excuse me. And uh, you can flip through them. Do your exercise as long as your hands are free and it's safe to do so. So I, I urge scripture memory. Anyway, ten days ago I was walking home from work, reviewing Romans 5 about where it says suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And I thought. God's love has been poured into our hearts. That's one of the benefits. We, as believers, we have an outside source. We don't have to just depend on ourselves for everything in our life. God supplies us. He, he gives us love so that we can be more fulfilled and obey his command to love our neighbors as ourselves. And isn't that why I sense that Christians can and do live a more balanced and fulfilled life than unbelievers? The outside source. And love is just one of God's resources for us. The topical memory system has six others, and there have to be a multitude of others here. They have two verses under each of these. His spirit, his strength, his faithfulness, his peace, his provision, his help and temptation. All things God supplies us. So how can we be faithful with the unrighteous man so as to be entrusted with true riches? 
How can we serve God rather than money? First, we must recognize that God, God owns everything. And we are his stewards to care for and administer what he, what he has as he directs. What we have as he directs. We can't say, wait a minute, I worked hard to get what I have and I'll, I'll give my tithe to the Lord and use the rest as I please. It's all his. I grew up in the church and in my teens I, I knew that God knew everything. I knew that he had my best interests at heart. And I knew that he wanted to be Lord of my life. So I said, uh, I think I'll run my own life. Uh, the results were not very satisfying. Eventually, when I was 18, I relented, and I let him take the reins. And he gave me peace and hope and a whole bunch of other things, too. It was my first big step in submitting to his ownership. Receiving, receiving the Lord into my life. His ownership is seen in Romans 11:36, where he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. And in Psalm 24, 1, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And 1 Chronicles 29, 12 says, Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. Our very strength to earn money comes from God. It all belongs to him. We are his stewards. Commenting on this parable, Matthew Henry says, Whatever we have, the property of it is God's. We have only the use of it according to the direction of our great Lord and for his honor. This, this steward wasted his Lord's goods, and we are liable to the same charge. We have not made due improvement on what God has entrusted us with. Randy Elkhorn verbalizes for us what, to a large extent, we may feel inside. Why should I follow Scripture's teaching on money and possessions when it's so much fun to have all the nice things I want and do whatever I please with my money? I'm a Christian and I know I'm going to heaven anyway, so why get radical about the whole money thing? Why not have the best of both worlds, this one and the next? Then he answers the, his question, Given our false assumption that what we do in this life won't have eternal consequences apart from our decision to place our, our uh, trust in Christ for salvation, it's no wonder we're unmotivated to follow, follow God's directions re regarding money and possessions and everything else. When it comes down to it, what difference will it make? According to the prevailing theology, everything comes out in the wash, so it won't make any difference at all. But according to the Bible, it will make a tremendous difference. The doctrine of eternal rewards for our obedience is the neglected key to unlocking our motivation. Now, I know this came up in Sunday school last week, that our first motivation to follow God is to, because he is God. And I agree with that. Here we are talking about our second motivation, eternal rewards. Perhaps it's like going to school for the joy of learning. But our second motivation is, let's get good grades. We're talking rewards, but first a disclaimer. 
Alcorn comments on the distinction between salvation and rewards. Whenever we speak of rewards, particularly because we speak of them so rarely, it's easy to confuse God's work and man's. Many mistakenly believe that heaven is our reward for doing good things. Do you think that? This is absolutely not the case. Our presence in heaven is in no sense a reward for our works, but a gift freely given by God in response to faith. And he cites three scriptures, Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Consider, uh, let's see, Despite prevailing, oh, he goes on here about rewards. Despite prevailing opinions to the contrary, the prospect of rewards is a proper motivation for the Christian's obedience, including the generous giving of our money and possessions. If we maintain it's wrong to be motivated by rewards, we bring a serious accusation against Christ. We imply he is tempting us to sin every time he offers rewards for obedience. Since God does not tempt his children, it's clear that whatever, whatever he lays before us as a motivation is legitimate. It's not wrong for us to be motivated by the prospect of reward. Indeed, something is seriously wrong if we are not motivated by reward. Consider these scriptures about rewards. Matthew 6, 19-21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust do corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust, rust do corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Hebrews 11:6. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Matthew 5, 11 and 12, we had this last week in the Beatitudes in the sermon. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In his book, Alcorn records 15 scriptures having to do with rewards, and seven more scriptures having to do with the rewards of rulership, and five more scriptures having to do with crowns as rewards. Maybe you're getting the picture. Eternal rewards are going to cost us in this life. They involve, they involve deferred gratification but the reward is sure. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love which you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. Our text says, No servant, no servant can serve two masters. 
The Guzik Bible Commentary says, How can you tell who or what you are serving? It is by your willingness to sacrifice for your God. If you will sacrifice for the sake of money, but will not sacrifice for the sake of Jesus, don't deceive yourself. Money is your God. The Pharisees I think I forgot to read the last part. Yes, we need to read 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this, and they scoffed at him. But he said to him, to them, you, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The Pharisees were among the religious leaders of their day and looked good on the outside, but they really missed the boat. In fact, they were on the wrong boat, headed in the wrong direction. Uh, I might be construed to be sort of a religious leader, and I need to ask myself, maybe you can identify, do I only look good on the outside? What does God see in my heart? What kind of a steward am I with what he has given me? Am I listening to and doing what he says? Or am I like those in the church of the Laodicea, either cold or hot? The Lord says to them, You say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Question. Why does God entrust most Americans with wealth? Answer to further his kingdom. Jerry Caven had a successful restaurant chain, two banks, a ranch, a farm, and several real estate ventures. At age 59, he was searching for a nice lakeside retirement home. But the owner, capital O, had other plans. God let us put our money and time overseas, Jerry said. It's been exciting. Before, we gave token amounts. Now we put substantial money into missions. We often go to India. Let us be good stewards of what he has entrusted to our care for his purposes and use the money and possessions he has entrusted to us to prepare for the future as he directs. Let's pray. Our Father, we want to acknowledge you as the owner of all that we have. We want you to use it, use it for your purposes. We trust you that uh, we want to be faithful in that which is least, the possessions that we have, so that in the future you may, and even in the present, you may trust us with the true riches. Help us to be faithful stewards. In Jesus' name.